Central-Controlled Labor Union, free from Jewish Moscow directed domination. Merry Christmas, positive and uplifting clip. Um, do you know when that happened? 1939. Do you know where it happened? Portland. Portland? <laughs> New York City, Madison Square Gardens, February 20th, 1939. So you have 22,000 people packed at that place, pro that message. Uh, you have some that were opposing it, no doubt. Um, you have the greater New York City area, which is a million people or so. And most of those people, you know, avoid, ambivalent, ignore, whatever. And you have one guy, his name is Isidore Greenbaum. One guy that says, uh-uh, uh-uh. This ain't happening. And he rushes the stage and gets arrested. And he's not some kind of like activist dude. He was a, a, a plumber's assistant, most ordinary kind of person ever. Plumber's assistant, rushes the stage, gets arrested for that. And when he gets arrested, he goes and talks to the judge. And here's the conversation. The judge asked, why'd you do it? He said, quote, there was so much persecution I lost my head and I felt it was my duty to talk. One guy. The judge then said, don't you realize that innocent people might have been killed? His response. Do you realize that plenty of Jewish people might be killed with their persecution up there? February 20th, 1939. He's a prophet because what he said was right. And no one knew this at the time, but Hitler was completing his sixth concentration camp right at that moment. And he's saying, if this isn't ended, if we don't do something, if somebody doesn't stand up against this thing, man, there's gonna be evil. One guy, he ends up joining the army, becomes a decorated vet from World War II. So you have in that little clip, a lot of different reactions to evil. And whenever I think about evil, I always first ask, how would I respond? What would I have done there? Would I have ignored it, been complicit in it, supported it, rushed the stage? What would I have done? And we're gonna read a chapter in the Bible, very hard chapter. And what you're gonna see is, we'll see, there's a bunch of different responses of the people in this story, in this narrative, to a real evil, unjust action. And then uh, what I hope to do is say, as Christ followers, how should we respond when we see great evil, all right? So if you would, turn with me to Genesis 34. And once you've turned there, here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna read the whole chapter. I want you to grab your Bible or your app or whatever it is, and I want you to stand up as we read this section of scripture and give reverence to the very reading of God's word. So please, Genesis 34, stand up with me as we read together.
Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamer deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing. To give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son Shechem. And the young woman, young man, did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the city gate and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, and all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, I bet. <laughs> I don't know how they did it, but there wasn't razor blades. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. 
the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the house they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Father, a difficult chapter, a difficult subject. Some here have been subject to the same evil. And so we ask, Lord, for your spirit to be working in our midst, to be helping and to be guiding. We pray that we as a people would be both courageous and pure. So would you speak to us through this story? And may we be a people who obey you and listen and are sculpted and changed and transformed by you. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You can have a seat. Obviously, the subject matter here is uh, adult, so, and it's also hard. Uh, if you have kids, they can handle it great, or if you can't, no problem. Um, I get it. It's a difficult subject. But what we see in Genesis 34, I mean, you can feel free to leave if, you, if you're uncomfortable. Uh, what we see in Genesis 34 is there's a number of different responses to this evil action of rape. The first reaction is that of Shechem and his dad, mainly his dad. And what his dad says is this, we can leverage this. We can use this. This is gonna lead to prosperity, right? We're, we're gonna now get together with this tribe. And then he says to his guys, we're gonna own their property and all their stuff. He never mentions the sin, never mentions the action, just says, we're gonna use it. We're gonna leverage it. We're gonna make money off this deal. This is the way business is done. Doesn't that sound strangely modern? Like last month in Hollywood? Like this is the way business is done. This is just how movies are made and how stars are made. This is business as usual. I think as believers, we can get on causes like fair trade coffee or fair trade chocolate, and that's okay. I think as believers, we should say we want sex-free, sexual violence-free entertainment. If a company is harboring predators like that, we won't support them and we're not gonna watch the junk. The best way to hurt businesses is not with protests, it's with your money. That's the language they speak. We should protest that way, right? So Hollywood, we can always like point the finger at Hollywood, down with Hollywood, but it's not just Hollywood where the elites kind of are protected. It's throughout history, elite people have been protected. Shechem's called the prince of this city, this kid that did this. He's called the, the, 
Best dude in his dad's house. That's a pretty bad home. <laughs> Top in his dad's home. And he's protected. And it's not just Hollywood. Maybe you paid attention to this a couple years ago. There was this Olympic caliber swimmer at Stanford that raped a girl. Maybe you remember that. Went to jail, went to court, was found guilty of that. And his father, like Shechem's father, begins to intervene in it and be like, hey, hold on a second. And so this dad writes this letter to the judge. And the part that caused a lot of uproar was when this dad said about his son, listen, it's unfair to punish my son with a lengthy prison sentence for a 20 minute mistake. Do you remember that? Yeah, there was an uproar. And so the girl who had been violated wrote back. It's one of the hardest letters I've ever read. And what she said, just to, to get to the part, she said this, a 20 minute mistake. Do you realize that every morning I wake up in a body that feels dirty and filthy to me? A body that I wanna somehow take off, but I can't. A body that I scrub and try to get clean, but it never feels clean to me. And this is not a body that's gonna last for 20 minutes or 20 days or 20 months. It's a body I'm gonna be in for the rest of my life. So the judge has both these letters in front of him. I've read both of them. The, the one by the girl is way more compelling. Both these letters, he reads them, right? And then he sentences. And the sentence he was supposed to give, according to law, was between six years and 12 years. And he gave the young Olympic caliber swimmer from Stanford six months. Because it's unfair. He's the future of our country. Prosperity, it's unfair. And so you read that and you just realize this has been history. History has been, right? The elite have different rules. The princes of the city have different rules. So we can leverage this and use this and do whatever we want. That's response number one. Response number two is Jacob. And in verse five, he holds his peace. I can get that. But we find out why he held his peace in verse 30. He was more worried about the status quo. He was more worried about his own safety than what was right. He was more worried about not causing trouble, his reputation, all those things, right? That's, what he's, that's why he ignored it. So he ignores it for his own safety and his own deal. But when you ignore, especially sexual violence, it's like a cancer. It metastasizes and it grows and it spreads. And what happens is his sons now become murderers and thieves. So his ignoring it doesn't solve the problem. It just makes it much, much worse. As a dad, I just think how possibly, can, it's baffling to me, baffling. How, how could this be ignored? But then I look at the Harvey Weinstein thing and look at the, the list of people in this company and the list of actors who for decades have ignored him as well. And once again, I don't like pointing the fingers at Hollywood without also saying in our own home, the church has ignored sexual predators and swept things under the rugs at times. Well, the brother was molested in church. And the guy that did it, there was, it, people knew about it. I didn't find out about it until after he died. He wouldn't talk to me about it. But that was swept under the rug. So ignoring it is not an option because the perpetrator will do it again. So here, Jacob just ignores it. So you've got first, we're gonna leverage this and use this prosperity. It's the way show business goes. Number two, ignore it, sweep it on the rug, just get away from it. Number three is silence. Did you notice Dinah 
The one who suffered and was violated, do you notice she doesn't speak a word? You would think you'd want her view of it. You'd think you'd get some kind of, hey, this is her. But she's silent through the entire chapter. Why do you think the Bible does that? Because most women who have suffered sexual violence stay silent. I think the Bible is showing us the truth of what happens to so many young women who go through these kind of things. Like the Hollywood thing, how many women stayed silent in that thing until one finally broke it and then the dam opens. And all these women say, yeah, that happened to me. And they stayed silent for years and years and years and years. And I've been reading the accounts because I think it's really healthy for believers to know what happens to people so that we empathize. And I cut out too, just to read for you to kind of show this is, this is what a victim feels. Because I haven't been the victim of this. This is how a victim feels. So I'll read you two accounts of girls that were hurt by Harvey Weinstein. Number one, she continued to blame herself for not fighting harder. Quote, it was always my fault for not stopping him, she said. I had an eating disorder for years. I was disgusted with myself. It's funny. <laughs> it's not funny. All these unrelated things I did to hurt myself because of this one thing. Evans told friends some of what happened, but felt largely unable to talk about it. I ruined several really good relationships because of this. My schoolwork definitely suffered, and my roommates told me to go to a therapist because they thought I was going to kill myself. The second girl, quote, the thing with being a victim is I felt responsible because if I were a strong woman, I would have kicked him in the, and run away, but I didn't. And so I felt responsible, end quote. Dinah's silence is because that's what happens so often to women who are hurt this way. They feel like damaged goods. They just wanna get by it, get over it, but it doesn't. It's like a festering wound. And this girl hurts herself over and over and over again. And Hollywood right now is shocked by it all. Like, how could this happen? And these actors with these great causes like over in Thailand or whatever and, and all this stuff, and they all knew about it. It's so hypocritical to me. You got a predator in your own home and you're out here with all these causes and justice and stuff. It's hardcore. And they're shocked by it. I'm not shocked by sin. There's this idea that I think is crazy to me that somehow humans have changed. That we're not the same as we were 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. That somehow because of technology and progress, we are something different. So Hollywood is like, you know, we're the 21st century progressive, equality, all these things. Ah, and they have this terrible evil in their midst. I'm never shocked by sin. You know what I am shocked by though? Is the silence of those that knew. That is shocking to me. To me, it's sad and shocking. But not, technology is not gonna change us. Just because we have an iPhone doesn't mean we're not gonna be evil anymore. It's kind of ridiculous. But there was, if you know history and the way Western civilization happened, they believed for most of the 18th and 19th century, they believed that humans would eventually rise up and become different kind of people. Rousseau with his noble savage, noble savage, right? Have you heard that? 
that we're just gonna overcome these evils. We don't need God to do it. We're just gonna be changed by our own goodwill. If you don't know that, I'll give you an example how strong it was. Who here has heard of the book, The Lord of the Flies? Or saw the movie, The Lord of the Flies? Okay, you, you've seen it. Okay, simple plot. William Golding, 1960. Uh, bunch of English kids wreck on a deserted island. They get off. They just corrode into just absolute savagery and murder and violence and really, really bad stuff, right? Well, William Golding stole the plot from that movie, or that book, I should say, from a book written in 1850 called The Coral Island. And The Coral Island was a book about English school kids who wreck on a deserted island. And instead of going into crazy murder and anger, the kids in 1850 on Coral Island create a utopian civilization. It's perfect, it's beautiful, it's prospering. Because they believe this, if we could just take kids away from the harmful influence of culture and their parents and their past, and we just put kids in a great environment, paradise on the island, then the best in kids would come out and they'd become something beautiful and incredible and life would be awesome, right? Well, I have boys. And left to themselves, they do not create order and paradise. They create Lord of the Flies and ah, right? <laughs> But what happened between 1850 and 1960 to change the predominant way we view humans? Yeah, World War I with trench warfare, a horrific thing that we've never seen before in history where chemicals were used and millions and millions of people died, horrific, gurgling deaths. And then World War II where this evil was unleashed called Nazism. And people were killed and killed and killed and baked in ovens. And so with a view on that, it was, oh, humans aren't getting better. And there's something broken in humans. If you leave humans together, it's Lord of the Flies. That's what happens to them. But Dinah here is silent. She doesn't have a voice. She's silent, as many who suffer this kind of stuff are. Then fourthly, you have explosion. The brothers come in from the field. They hear about this. They're angry and indignant, verse seven. And then they clean house, verse 25. They go in. And as a man with daughters and a wife and a sister, I get that. I understand that. I can feel that in my bones, right? Defend. But what they wanted was to restore the honor of their sister and what they got was they made things a lot worse. What they wanted was justice. What they became were mass murderers. What they wanted was to think, make things right, but they didn't. They made things a lot, lot worse. And if they, if they wanted to restore anything and make things better, they didn't. They didn't. They, if you would, got down into Lord of the Flies. And here's how they did it. Look at verse 27. It's very instructive. Because it says this, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. Did they defile Dinah? No, one guy did, Shechem. But if you're gonna wipe out a city, you have to stereotype them. 
So they're all rapists. They're all, maybe the men were complicit. Nobody knows that. Here's what they knew. One guy raped our sister. But when they were going for genocide and want to wipe out an entire city, you have to make them all that way in order to allow your anger to explode that way. And that's what they did. That's the way genocide always works. That's the way evil always works. It's not one guy over there. It's all of them are this way, stereotyping. That's exactly what they do. And they wipe out this entire city, killing every male in there. It's a super ugly chapter. And can you see what's missing in this chapter? What's never mentioned? God, prayer, or altar building, which in Genesis are the big three. God's not mentioned, prayer's not mentioned, and no altar was built. It's as if they say, God, we don't want your help on this one. We're going Lord of the Flies. And that's what they do. And it just gets ugly and gross. And the reactions you see in there are all wrong. Explosion, silence, ignoring, and leveraging. So as believers in Jesus, how are we supposed to respond to horrific evil? What are we supposed to do? What's a godly response to evil? I'm gonna give you four ways. And number one is this, deal with your own demon first. Jesus says this, judge not lest you be judged. Pull the beam out of your own eye before you try to deal with the speck in another guy's eye. Jesus says, before you start putting judgment on other people, make sure you take care of yourself first. I think that's the way believers are always supposed to be because evil is always an inside job, right? Women don't get raped because they're dressed a certain way. Women get raped because of what's inside of men. That's why they get raped. So the Bible says, you deal with yourself first. Take care of you first. So Jesus, and you can turn there, it's Matthew chapter five. He walks us through how to deal with this thing. So it's really easy to look at Matt or Genesis 34 and be like, rape is wrong. But Jesus doesn't let us off that easily because he says, listen, there is something, a spark in every single one of you that if you kindle that spark right, it's gonna erupt into the same kind of sexual sin. So he says this, turn with me if you would to Matthew chapter five. Verse 27, deal with yourself first. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, sexual sin. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better <laughs> that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus goes deeper. So everyone's gonna be able to say, hey, okay, rape is wrong, child molesting is wrong, whatever. But Jesus says, beware, because there is in you a little fire that can erupt into the same kind of stuff that will end up a hell. And he says it like this to men. If you're looking upon a woman with lust, 
The Greek there is a sustained stare. Every man knows what that is. Not a glance. <laughs> Someone laughs. <laughs> oh. Every man knows what it is. It's not the glance, it's the sustained stare. Jesus says you are stacking kindling around lust and look out, it will explode and send you to hell. Because there's a giant difference between love and lust. What you see throughout Genesis 34 is Shechem isn't loving Dinah, he's got lust for her. And they're very different. So lust is this. Lust is any person will do. Love is, Jesus, I'm looking for one person to covenant with for the rest of my life. Love is giving of yourself, not thinking of yourself. Love, or rather lust, is saying, I want, I need, I'm gonna consume. Lust always looks at people as objects. It objectifies them. And then always looks at people to satisfy your lust, your needs, your thing. Where love is always giving. And Jesus says, lust sends you to hell. And love brings you to heaven. They're very, very different. And Hollywood will produce these movies that are called chick flicks. You ever watch a chick flicks? Don't, they're dumb. But essentially, a chick flick always does this. It begins with lust and always ends with love. It begins with like the crazy relationships and multiple whatever, but then always ends with two people committed to each other. Because even Hollywood knows lust leads to hell and love is heavenly. So when I talk to young people, I say, this spark in us, it's like nuclear power. If you take nuclear power and you put it inside of concrete and rebar and you put controls on it, it's really beneficial. It produces electricity. It turns on the lights right here. It'll charge up your Tesla. If you have a Tesla, I'd love to test drive your Tesla, <laughs> right? But you turns your iPhone on. It does all kinds of good stuff. But you take that same power outside of the concrete and the rebar and the controls and you remove it from there, what does it become? It becomes a bomb. It's hell. It's destructive. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look out. So Jesus then says, if you're struggling, pull out your eye, cast it away. Take your hand and cut it off. Now, is he serious? If you struggle with lust, go out the back door and cut off your arm. Is that what he's saying? If he was serious, he's telling men to cut off the wrong part. Because blind people can lust and one-handed people can lust. What he's saying is this, this sin is so horrific. This sin is so horrific. You do anything necessary to deal with it because it is either gonna send you to hell or heaven. That's how bad this sin is. That's what he's saying. And he actually gets to the core of it when he says in verse 28, he says, it's a heart issue. It's not out there issue. It's not how people are. It's not how our culture is. It's not what's on the internet. It's a heart issue. It's what's inside of you. That's the problem. And so Jesus from this point on is gonna drive into what we would call the new covenant. 
that what humans need is not just a beautiful paradise where they're all by themselves and they just rise up. What humans need is a brand new heart because the old heart is deceitful and wicked and it's hard and it's crushed and it's broken and it's wrong. And so Ezekiel 36 says, this new covenant's gonna come where I'll take your heart of flesh out, or heart of stone out, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'm gonna write on your tablet of the heart, my will. And so as new covenant Christians, we've been given that new heart. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, here's what I'm convinced you do. If you're trying to figure out how to get over lust, here's what you do. It's a simple step. Number one, if you're being tempted, you stop. Number two, you pray. Number three, you think deeply about what you most want. Hopefully in community around other people that are reinforcing that. And then if you do those four things, most of the time you'll do what's right because God's giving you a new heart. And what Satan likes to do is he likes to tempt us with lust on the top. And what you really want is that, that woman, that guy right now. No, you don't. If you stop and think about it, what you really want is love a long-term committed relationship, one man, one woman, one life, that's what you want. And if you'll stop and think about that, it takes all the power out of that quick, lustful passion. I'm Adam, a believer, and I still struggle with lust. So I may have a new heart, but man, I don't know, it's not working right. Then you pray the prayer of David, who I think he had a lust problem. It turned to Bathsheba and adultery and murder. He goes pretty bad too. And this is how David prayed. It's Psalm 139, 23 and 24, where he prays this, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. God, look at my heart, evaluate it, root out what's evil in me, and then lead me on the path everlasting. You pray that over and over and over and over and over again until God, until God transforms your heart. He renovates it. So the New Testament is not about behavioral modification. It's about a heart renovation. And that's the one work that only Jesus can do for you and me. So number one, when we are faced with evil, number one, you deal with the demon in you. Number two, back to our story. Number two, get angry at evil. The brothers, while they don't do things right, the one thing they do right is this, they're mad. This outrageous thing must not be done. When their dad gets mad at them for doing something about it, they call out their dad. No way. Our sister's not gonna be treated like a prostitute. They do that thing right. And as a dad, okay. As a brother, okay. I can sense that. But here's their mistake. They explode with anger. The New Testament tells us this. It's Ephesians 5.26. Be angry, but sin not. So I think too often Christians, when it comes to evil, we've been passive when we should not be. We should be passionate. We should get angry. We should protest. We should say that's wrong. We should do more of that. But when we do that, we don't get this cranky kind of explosion. If you look at God's wrath in the Bible against evil, it's always this. It's a settled disposition against evil. God's a bulwark against it saying, no, 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 no. That's the way Christians are supposed to be. That is evil, not in my city, not in my state, not in my country, not in my home. Settled disposition against it. And it can take years. I think about William Wilberforce, who said and got angry at slavery, 
This is evil. It must stop. So guess what he did? He got elected to parliament. And in parliament, he would be always talking about the evil of slavery. And it didn't take a month or a week or a year. It took year after year, I think about 10, 15 years until finally the parliament of England said, that's right, that's evil. It was a settled disposition against that evil. And eventually it changed the world. That's what happens. We need to be those kind of people that when we drive around our city and we look at evil, we say, no, not in my city. Get angry. I pray this quite often. God, make me angry with what makes you angry. I want your same wrath against evil. I don't wanna ignore it like Jacob. I don't wanna leverage it. I don't wanna explode on it. I don't wanna be silent on it. I wanna get angry in the right kind of way against evil. God, make me angry with what makes you angry. Number three, we defend. People who don't have a voice or can't speak or the low, you know, they're not the elite, they're not the princes of the city, we defend them. So there's that article that I read where the girl's friends told her she needed a therapist. When I read that, I thought, she doesn't need a therapist. I don't have anything against therapy. But I thought what she needs is justice. What she needs to know is she's blaming herself for this. She needs to see the perpetrator of that crime be put in prison. And then she'll realize it wasn't my fault. It was his fault. He's evil. He's wrong. They need to be put in jail. So another person in my family that was molested, she told me this. She said, Matt, the worst part about it was this. No one fought for me. That everyone was trying to defend this and, and help the reputation here and not do this. And, and the person was sent away. No one fought for me. As Christians, we need to be those that fight this fight. And so I am, if, if, if you're familiar with foster care or pastoring, I'm what's called a mandatory reporter. You guys know what that means? It means if you hear about sexual sin, sexual crimes, you are, by law, you have to report them. And so I 100% agree with that, not because the law tells me that, but because of Romans 4, 13, that the government has a sword for a reason. It's to punish that evil. And the person that perpetrates this evil, if they're not caught, usually they'll do it again. And so even to protect them from doing more evil to themselves, they need to deal with it. They need to be turned in. We defend. So I hear about things, I turn it in. No problem with that at all. But it's even bigger than that to me. Um, I have this idea when it comes to, to how we're to be as Christians. And it's called inaugurated eschatology. That's a fancy word for saying something was begun that's gonna be ended. And here's what I believe about this thing that we live in, the church, bigger than that, the kingdom of Jesus. I believe 2,000 years ago, Jesus came as rightful king in disguise and planted something. And that's something that he planted 2,000 years ago. You and I are to be building, we're to be builders of that kingdom from that day forward. And then one day the Bible tells us, Jesus will return and he'll complete the kingdom. So we're in the middle of this inaugurated kingdom and then it's gonna be a completed kingdom at some point. And in the in-between, I think we are to be those that look forward to the way things should be and work for it right now. In the kingdom, it's gonna be like that. So I'm gonna work that for that right now. So that's, that's my, pretty much, that encompasses how I look at the Bible and how I look at life. What's it gonna be in the kingdom? Because I want my home, I want my family, I want Grant's past to be a little colony of the kingdom right now. 
a preview of coming attractions. This is what it's gonna look like, right? So the book of Revelation to me is a simple book. It's not about Russia or tanks or this stuff. It's a simple book and it's this. However you interpret it, the book is this. God getting the hell out of earth. That's that final book. This hell that came in, in the garden that took root and corrupted and broke and caused rapes and sexual violence in Revelation. God is unrooting it and removing it so that we see this at the very end. He wads it all up, throws it away in chapter 20 into a place called the lake of fire. And then this is what happens. I'll read it for you. Verse 20, verse one of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Then verse three, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was, who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's the kingdom I pray for. Jesus, can we have a city where the pain of sexual violence is gone? That has happened for generations here. Can we see that gone? That's what I pray for. And that's what I work for. So we defend and we go and we dream big. We should dream big for Grants Pass. Our dreams should scare us. If we're not dreaming in a scare, like people should say, that's crazy, that'll never happen. I don't care. Why wouldn't I dream any bigger than that? The scourge of heroin and opioid crisis gone in Grants Pass, that's what I pray for. Because that's what the kingdom will be. So you dream big. So we defend the poor and those that are facing injustice and the ones that are overlooked, the dinas that are silent, we defend and then lastly, how do godly people respond to evil? And here's the one that I don't really know how to do. We wanna see your pain transformed. So I have a saying, and I think it's right. Pain that's not transformed will be transferred. That if that pain, especially sexual pain, if that pain isn't transformed somehow in your life, then what's gonna happen is you hurt yourself somehow or you hurt other people around you. We heard that in that one interview of that girl. She goes, I couldn't believe all these dumb things I was doing that traced back to this event that happened to me. Pain that's not transformed will be transferred. You'll hurt yourself or you'll hurt other people. And I haven't been thinking about this just for a couple of weeks. It's sort of been in my life. And then more than that, a conversation I had two years ago. It was the 23rd of December, 2015. I got a call from a young lady. She lived a couple thousand miles away and she had been raped two nights before that. And she called my wife and I and we're talking with her. And she was essentially calling to say goodbye because I'm killing myself. And so the conversation obviously is trying to talk her out of that. But she was adamant, this is what she's gonna do. This is goodbye. This is what I need you to do for me. This is how, you know, 
can, can you do this stuff for me? And so I'm not agreeing to any of that. I'm just doing the steps I know to do. Um, and then uh, I'm passing the phone to my wife and I'm on the internet trying to find like, is there a women's crisis center out there? Is there somebody? And I'm calling these places, asking them. And they're saying, we don't, we don't pick up people. It's a volunteer thing. They have to be brought here. You can drive her here. I can't drive her. She's 2000 miles away. Can you go? No, we don't do that. You need to call the police. Then you do a wellness check. And I knew if I did that, that this girl would be very angry at me. But eventually I got just to the end after 45 minutes of this, I said, okay. So I call the sheriff over there. They send out a cruiser. I get on the phone with this girl. I said, I know you're gonna be mad at me, but I didn't feel like I had a choice. I called the police. They're coming to your house. And this girl who's nonviolent and not angry and not, doesn't have that kind of stuff in her just said, all right. And it's going down like this. You're gonna see me on the evening news because no policeman is coming into this home. And if he tries to come in this home, I have a gun and I'm gonna shoot him. And it's going on the evening news. So now I'm freaking out and I'm pleading with her. No, this is not the kind of person you are. This is not who you are. I know you've been hurt. I know this is painful. I know now you're responding to that pain and I realize that, but do not do this. You've got to put the gun down. Nope, you'll read about me. This is going on the paper. People are going to read about this. And I'm pleading and pleading. The, 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 the conversation got so intense because literally she's talking to me as the policeman's knocking on the door. And I had called the police and told the police, hey, she has a gun just to let you know that because I don't want you stepping into something crazy. So they know that. So they're knocking on the door and she's telling me it's going down. I just put the phone down. I couldn't listen anymore. And I started praying, Jesus, don't let it go down like this. Bring peace, do something, intervene. I understand she's hurt. And praise God, she put the phone down or she put the gun down and she was put on a 72 hour hold at a mental health place and, and she's doing better now. Our relationship's kind of funny. But what that really told me was this. When you're hurt this way, you respond in ways that are not who you are. And I would talk to young ladies who've been hurt when they were children. And they're responding to that pain in ways that they know is not them. I don't know why. I just talked to a, a lady a couple of days ago who told me this. I don't even know why I'm doing this to myself. I said, I do. I know why you're doing it to yourself. Because the pain that happened to you hasn't been transformed yet. So now you're transferring it and it's just gonna keep, it's just gonna replicate. And it breaks my heart. And the statistics on it are staggering. Like it's one in six women and one in eight men have had some kind of sexual violence done to them. In a room like this, you're like, there, there's a lot of people then, statistically. So how in the world do I help do what I'd love to help do in a room like this with the stigma of sexual violence and the silence that happens so often, and especially with men, the guilt, not feeling like a man? And what do I do? Like, what I wanna do is I just wanna say, stand up. I just wanna hug you. I want to tell you God loves you. I want to tell you you're not damaged goods. But that doesn't work here. I want to do Galatians 6, 1 and 2 that says, you who are strong, come around those that are weak and bear their burdens and help them. That's what I want to do. But it just won't work here. So I'll tell you this, ladies, 
We have a group called Wildflowers and it's brilliant. It is brilliant. I have talked to women who have gone through Wildflowers and they say for the first time, I'm healed. The pain that I have is finally transformed. Get in that group. Call the Titus two gals. Talk with them. Don't be silent. Don't allow that pain to be transferred to yourself and to other people. Don't do that. If you're a guy, it's even harder. I don't know what to do other than say, Matt at edgewaterfellowship.org. Let me know. And I'll try to walk with you and try to do Galatians 6, 1 and 2 for you. If you can get prayer, man, we'll have some people up here that love to pray for you. And I realize no one's gonna do it because there's stigma and there's pain and there's hurt. And that's just not how it works and all that kind of stuff. And we have these lies of the enemy coming at us. And I'll tell you this, ladies, listen, you are not damaged goods. Your king loved you enough to die for you. You are not damaged. That is a lie of the enemy. And Jesus can take the ashes of that kind of pain. And Isaiah 61 says he can turn them into beauty. I know you can't see that. I know you can't understand that now, but I tell you it's true. It's happened for people. And I will say this, that when you come to the table, what you're seeing is this. You're seeing the greatest demonstration of love in history. That God becomes flesh and dwells among us. That God who thought, or Jesus who thought it not Robert to be one with God, made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. It was made in the likeness of man and he suffered. We didn't suffer my suffering. I have a professor, Gary Brashears, professor of theology at Western Seminary, a conservative seminary. He says this, in studying ancient prisons and jails, men sexually assaulted other men in prison. And he is convinced, you can talk to him, that Jesus was sexually assaulted in that prison when he was arrested. That's what men do to men. Jesus, because he loves you so much, allowed all the evil and all the pain and all the suffering and all the sore to be poured onto him. So Hebrews says he could become our faithful high priest that knows how to take that pain and transform it. That's what I know. And so as you eat and as you drink, you can eat and drink healing today because Jesus can transform your pain. I know that. He can take what the enemy wanted to use for evil to corrupt you and break you and take you out, he can turn it for something good. Only he can do that. That the violence of Good Friday can erupt into the brilliance of Easter Sunday. That's the Jesus we serve. That's our King. So come, eat of healing. Come, drink the refreshment of the new covenant, the new wine, that even as Jesus says, the one who sits on the throne, I make all things new. He can make all things new. He can do that. And so Jesus, 
Our hearts hurt. For your beloved daughters who sit here today with wounds and pain and hurt. have allowed those past things to now pollute their present, hurting others, hurting themselves. We ask for healing today. I pray as they partake in you, that you, the great physician, the healer of souls, the mender of lives, the redeemer, our crucified king, that by your spirit, even in this simple act of eating and drinking, they would eat and drink of the antidote to their pain and their suffering and the evil that's been done to them. Heal, I pray, for men who are hurt and harmed. I pray today they would be set free from guilt that's not their own, shame that they never earned. They would know that they are a king in training, one who will ride with you and rule the universe. That's their destiny. They would stop believing the lies that they're anything less than a man. And they would receive their identity from the fact that they have been redeemed and adopted into the king of the universe's family. So work. Our hearts groan with your spirit because we don't even know what to say. We just say work and heal and move. And we pray this in your name. Amen.